0: Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now we're live on the web. Well, Merry Christmas to you. That was totally unconvincing. I'll try again. Merry Christmas to you. Seven days and counting. Uh, many of you, in fact, have seen the Nativity story by now, and we've been using that film to kind of look at the Christmas narrative with a fresh set of eyes. Uh, there are real people involved in God's invasion of history. And we've been kind of surprised to discover just how God, from the very beginning, actually didn't use spiritual superstars to inaugurate his plan of redemption to this broken world. Rather, from the very conception of Jesus' birth, he used ordinary Joes, ordinary people, people like Mary, people like Joseph, Two obscure, working-class young adults from a backwater town in ancient Israel, you know, to accomplish His purposes. That's, that's one of the things the Nativity is about, you know, ordinary people who are thrust into these extraordinary circumstances, and the details of their lives teach us something about our extraordinary God. I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. It is the first book in the New Testament, and we're going to look at chapter 2, which is on page 1554, and we turn our focus tonight to part 3 of rediscovering the nativity, and we're calling this what wise men still know. Our gaze turns to those three wise guys whom you see riding plastic camels on lawn displays everywhere in New Jersey at this time of year. Uh, Let's take a look at their perspective. We're going to read this together, Matthew 2, just the first 12 verses. And what's interesting to note is, uh, a little background, Matthew is actually the only uh, gospel writer who includes... The account of the wise men, or the magi, in his gospel. So that's significant. Let's start with verse 1 of chapter 2 under the heading, The Visit of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, And all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, or you, Bethlehem, where are we go? Oh, in the land of Judah, verse 6, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Well, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. That's God's word. We'll stop there. Okay, the wise men. Question, who were these guys? You know, I've been showing you my family's nativity set for the past couple weeks up here. We've looked at Mary, we've looked at Joseph, and now these actually are the, my favorite of the whole set. They are carved out of kind of wood here, and you'll see the gifts that they're bearing. Three guys. They have no faces. We actually don't know their identity. Scripture never tells us who they were, or they actually, Scripture doesn't even tell us what country that they were from. But we're told they came bearing three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, or as my little girl likes to say, gold, frankenstein, and myrh. That's what, she, that's what she remembers from Liquid Kids. Great job. Um, it's, it's, it's a neat thing, but, but popular legend has kind of positioned them as kings. Remember as a kid, maybe those of you who are over church, remember singing, um, We three kings from Orient are... Thank you. High five, Mary Jo. Um, you remember that. Well, Well, most likely, oh, they weren't kings. The word used here is magi, and traditionally they've been called wise men. You'll see that in your footnote. And while we don't actually know where they came from, in fact, we don't even know how many there were. Traditionally, we think three, because three distinct gifts are mentioned. But scholars do have some idea. See, the term magi, or actually magoi, as it is actually in the, uh, in the Greek here, was originally used in early records to refer to a priestly caste in ancient Persia, what we know nowadays as Iraq. Most likely, they were men of high position from a royal court in Parthia, which is the ancient site of Babylon. And you can see in the, in the, in the word there, look at magi. It's a root word of what, what word do we know in English? Magician, yeah. Now, it's not like, oh, these guys like rabbits out of the hat. Why didn't they do that? No, not that kind of magician. They were possibly followers of Zoroaster, who was a Persian teacher and prophet. See, in Babylonia, magi were the leading figures in, in, in the religious court. But they were pagan. They didn't, they didn't know God, the one God of the Bible, and they employed a variety of means, actually. Um, specifically, they used uh, astrology, studying the stars, scientific. Diplomatic wisdom, academic study. And religious traditions from all sorts of diverse religions, magical incantation stuff, to try to decipher present and future life. And that fits, because after all, they were following a star, which fits their role as actually trained astrologers, And as you can see in verse 5, they were familiar with scripture. When Herod actually asked his people, the chief uh, priests uh, and and the the scholars in the law, they say, and when he says, you know, where where is Christ to be born? They quote from Micah 5, 2. It says, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel, and this was no doubt a verse that these three men were familiar with, and you're like, why? I thought you just said they're pagan. In other words, they didn't believe in the God of the Jews. You're right, but where did they live? Well, in Persia where after the Jewish exile, a large colony of Jews remained in Babylon, and most likely, they had been exposed to Judaism from those Jewish colonies. So, as the leading scholars in their country, it was their job to study all religious texts, all political texts and documents. And clearly, the Jews had left parts of the Old Testament, which they studied in detail, which is interesting, because what makes it incredible is that they got up... (laughs) kick their camels in the gear, and I, but, you know we never hear about camels if not where they had them, but they kick them in the gear and they leave the palace. Their comfortable life and their position in the royal palace to follow this obscure sign across thousands of miles of desert just to see if it were true. Above all else, the magi were what we would call truth seekers. They set out on this journey. A journey which was not a walk in the park. This Here's what this was not. This was not like, you know, we live in New Jersey and we saw a star. It was like, I think it was in Manhattan, maybe Queens, I don't know. Uh, you know, let's take the train in and see what the fuss is about. No, no. It's not like a hip, you know, a skip, hop, and a jump across the bridge. To give you an idea of how far they traveled to explore the arrival of Christ firsthand for themselves. Let me show you this map. Take a look at this thing. Um, this, if you can see where they started, and there you go. In modern day Iraq, most likely. Over there in Persia. And they cut up all the way up through Syria. Another country you hear about all the time on CNN and whatnot. And, uh, and cut all the way down through Palestine. Again, all, you know, in the news today. Down, and they arrived in Jerusalem. Where they made the small trek then to Bethlehem to see Jesus. And all told, if you take a look at the circuitous route, and you're kind of like, why didn't they just fly, you know, from one point to the other? Take, and anyone want to take a guess? They would have traveled approximately 900 miles on foot. Most likely, they, they probably actually had with them, they weren't traveling just the three of them, because they were part of the royal court system. That means they probably had a retinue of servants, maybe a security escort to kind of protect them and their gifts that they were bearing. And it likely would have taken them several months, maybe six or nine months, over treacherous, lonely desert terrain, from the first time they saw the star to until they arrived in uh, in Bethlehem. Which explains why it's most likely—I hate to break the news to you—that they arrived when Jesus was between one and two years old. And some of you are instantly objecting. Wait a minute. That's not how it is in the movie (laughs) or on my lawn. They're all there. I see them all together, the shepherds, everybody's. (laughs) Discount for the manger, you know, like, no, I've seen them. I know, I know. I I live in Madison with my wife, Colleen. In the town center of Madison, there's this giant nativity display. I took a picture of it uh, this week. You can see them right there. There they are, the three guys right there, you know, and and Joseph and and Mary, a lot of Marys, and Jesus, of course, you know, that, and a very clear-eyed donkey right there, (laughs) And, uh, and, and that's, how you see, that's how we're used to seeing it. Like on Christmas cards, they're all there, right? But in reality, they almost certainly were not there on the first night of Jesus' life. But rather a year or two years later. How do we know? Well, if you look a couple uh, verses ahead, it says in verse 11, On coming to the house, they saw the child, in other words, no longer a baby, with his mother Mary. In other words, by this time Joseph and Mary had actually settled, and Matthew is, is is clicking here. He's saying we've changed from chapter one where Jesus was born. He's no longer a baby. He is now a child, what we may call an infant, going into toddlerhood, and we know that because later on, when Herod gives the order to kill all the Jewish boys, he says all the boys who are how old? Two years old or younger. So most likely, these guys converged at a time that was different, and the time frame has jumped ahead. So why are the wise men often depicted at the scene of the nativity? I mean, this is not a theological thing, by the way. I mean, it's kind of interesting if you're interested in film and that kind of thing. But most narratives or storytellers use a literary convention called time compression. That's why I showed you that opening interview with Mike Rich, who's a screenwriter of the nativity. Great writer, did the rookie... Most storytellers depict them arriving at the same time as the shepherds just to kind of form that iconic nativity scene, like all converging at one time. But the Bible says it's most likely they arrived a year or two later. No doubt because the journey was of almost 1,000 miles across the desert would have taken almost like a gestation period, about nine months. So what's most significant then? is not their position or how far they came, but what was in their hands, what they came with. What, what did they bring with them? You guys know this. They brought with them. What do we do at Christmas? Gifts, right? Appropriate at Christmas time. And here's the thing. The, that's what I want to focus on because the gifts you bring tell a lot about the person receiving it as well as about the person giving it. It often shows whether the gift giver really understands the recipient or what their relationship is. How many? For instance, you did seven days, tick, tock, tick, tock. How many of you still have some shopping to do? You got seven days before next. You got to do the last minute. Okay, you're like... Get the sermon done. I gotta get to the Bridgewater Mall. You know, <laughs> um, maybe you're still searching for the perfect gift. We're like all done. Colleen like takes care of most of it, but she's like, I can't get my fa- my grandfather Poppy. How do we get Poppy? He's like, you know, he's older. He's almost like eighty. He's like, he's got everything. But He's like a gardener. So like, we went to uh, Restoration Hardware. We found this like kneeling pad to use in the garden. And, she- and I'm like, that looks familiar. I'm not good at these things. She's like, oh, we got this for him two years ago. We're like, no, foiled again. You know, maybe you have to get the perfect gift, or maybe you're hoping to receive the Perfect gift. <laughs> Got one friend, she, she's like, she's like, I'm hoping this is the Christmas that he gets the hint that he sees the De Beers commercial. You know, she wants that perfect gift to move her in a relationship. The the gifts we give and receive tell a lot about how well we know the recipient, what we think of them, and what role they actually play in our lives. Show you what I mean. One of the best gifts I received actually was last Christmas uh, from my wife Colleen. Something you may not know about me. I enjoy photography. <laughs> um, yeah, it's true. Would you like to know where you can get a, a good high-powered lens for me for Christmas? That's what Colleen got me, actually, last, last, uh, last Christmas. And it's a great thing. It was a great addition to my camera. In fact, you know what? Let me take a picture of this side. Everyone wave at me. Wave. Okay. Let me try this side. All right. Keep, keep going. Keep your hands up. This side is way more hands so I can see from there. <laughs> sorry. 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 But it's got this awesome zoom on it. And I can get you all the way in the back. I see you, Darren. Yeah, now I got a close-up of Darren, okay? And I can get you in the back. I can see you way in the back. And through this telephoto lens, I see the, you know, pimple on your neck in here. And it's, it's a great... Just kidding. <laughs> and uh, and there's, a, there's a great... there's a great It's a wonderful gift. You don't know that about me, that I enjoy photography and visual arts. My wife does. So she got me this thing. Now, that's an example. My wife, she knows me. Cool. What I also received last year, not so great a gift. Um. Yeah, I know, and I'm sorry. I, I realized somebody, you know, probably from this church gave this to me. Um, I appreciate that. Um, what I don't appreciate is this. Oh, wait, there's more. My dog has taken a liking to this. Which means around 2 a.m., guess what's happening downstairs? Ring, are you and it just keeps going and going, you know? And, uh, you know, it's not like I, you know, I, I appreciate that, you know. It was actually appropriate. It was someone I just know casually. They didn't know me very well. I guess they just assumed I like, you know, annoying tchotchkes. But But this is like, you know a little bit different, you know, but, but this Christmas, I, I, have already actually received my favorite Christmas gift already this season, already prior to Christmas, and you're going to, you're going to instantly know why. Look, yeah, isn't that sweet? You're like, Tim is a sucker for styrofoam. This is a styrofoam meat plate that, like, you put packaged meat in there, but you see there's a candle sticking out, and there are all these, like, like, twigs and like random branches kind of super glued to it and then just like a handful of glitter just like pfft, just on top of it and uh, and, and this is a styrofoam um, centerpiece one that my little girl made in preschool and she came home this week and she was just like, here you go daddy I was like, sweetheart, I was like, this is the most beautiful, and I looked at her mommy who was like, centerpiece <laughs> centerpiece I've ever seen, thank you. But, it, but it's true. This is like literally, I, I was like worried bringing it tonight because this is my favorite gift. Why? Not the most expensive, not the most annoying or, or soothing, but it represents the single most important role that I play in my entire life. I am her daddy. <laughs> I mean, there are all sorts of roles and hats that I wear, father, husband, pastor, you know, teammate, friend, whatever. But the gifts I receive tell a lot about me and something about the relationship of the giver to me. My wife actually usually ends up getting the best gift because she knows me the best. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this. Let me put this one behind here. It's a little bit better. I'll put this off to the side, and hopefully it doesn't go off again. Gifts. Gifts are significant. So what's the significance of the gifts that these wise men traveled 900 miles to bring Jesus they were significant. I mean, these guys were scholars. They understood what the star represented and who they believed they were meeting. And so I want you to consider just for a minute each gift and what it represents. And look in your Bibles, would you, at verse uh, 11 there together. If you're going to underline something or circle it, circle each one gold and what's the second one? Incense or frankincense. Maybe your translation has it frankincense. It's a specific type of incense we'll talk about. And. Myrrh. Gold, you guys know, it was the most precious metal in the ancient world, still is today, usually reserved for one person. Kings. In the ancient world, it was not just for, you know, jewelry or ornamentation on temples or palaces, but they actually made royal dining instruments out of gold. And that's significant. Because the magi were making a statement. They actually say it outright in verse 2 when they ask, where is the one who has been born what? King of the Jews. See, there was a king at that point, Herod. It names him right there. He was the king of the Jews by political calculation. But the Jews had been waiting for 400 years for, for a king or a Messiah, a savior who would come and not rule with an iron fist, but benevolently. In fact, the Magi were likely familiar with Numbers 24, 17, which is also a prophecy, which said a star will come out of Jacob, that is out of Israel, and a scepter will rise out of Israel. A scepter, of course, is a symbol of royalty or kingly power. And so on this journey to find Jesus, they follow the star, and in presenting him with the gift of gold, they were in essence declaring his kingship. And that's, that's at the core of the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ is not just any king But capital K, king of kings, ruler of all creation, master of the universe, all that has been created is by and for him. But here's the twist. That king came to rule, not in palaces built by men, but in human hearts. Significant gift number one. Gift number two, incense, right? Some translations do say frankincense, like my little girl says Frankenstein, I always thought it was like a Halloween kind of thing. Um, and, and the deal is, is that frankincense, you can even see like in the word frankincense, by the way, the word incense. Um, but, but this was no ordinary perfume. If you're like, oh, that's the smelly stuff. Yeah, frankincense is actually derived from an amber resin, which produces the sweet odor when burned. I was going to come and actually burn some, and Colin was like, you're going to have allergies, you'll never hear the end of it. I was like, all right, whatever. So frankincense, anyone know, quick, if you see if you know, those of you who are into like incense and stuff. Do you know what frankincense is? was specifically used for in the ancient world. One specific purpose. Yes, let me give you a hint. Turn to Exodus 30. Would you do that real quick? It's on page uh, 1. This is wrong. Page 140, I think, of your, of your Bible there. Exodus 30, verses 34. Yeah, it's on page 140, verses 34 through 38. This is, this is kind of fascinating. Take a look at this thing. It's right at the very top under incense. We're going Old Testament here. Take a look at this. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses... Take fragrant spices, gum resin, uh, onicha, that sounds like Japanese, sorry, I butchered that, and galbanum, and pure, there's the word, frankincense, all in equal amounts, and make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It is to be salted and pure and sacred. Grind some of it to powder and place it in front of the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. In other words, a special purpose. Do not make any incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider it holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to enjoy its fragrance must be cut off from his people. What's the point? In first century Israel, frankincense was used for one purpose. Ceremonially, as the exclusive incense that was permitted on the altar of the tent of meeting. In other words, where God met with his people. In other words, there was one fragrance that was exclusively to be offered to God alone. It says, don't you, look at the last verse. Whoever makes any, any like it to enjoy its fragrance must be cut off. In other words, this is not for you. Don't get off on this incense. This is God's. <laughs> and this is a gift of great significance. Because it's highlighting that not only Jesus is king with the gold, but the king of kings and God in the flesh This is a significant gift. I mean, these wise men, whether they were fully aware of it or not, in their gift giving, were making some profound statements about who Jesus was. That this baby, this child, a one-year-old boy named Jesus was no ordinary boy. But the king of kings and the living son of God himself. I mean, talk about fitting gifts for a special someone. Gift two. is perhaps the third gift that was the most revealing of all. And uh, we can all say it together. What's the third one? It is myrrh. Anyone know what myrrh is? It is a spice. Yeah, it's like potpourri. You're like, oh, okay, nice housewarming gift. Great job. No. Myrrh, too, was a mixture of resin, gum, and special oil. And it could be used, actually, for incense or perfume. You could put myrrh on yourself, make yourself feel better. It's kind of aphrodisiac at times. However, its most potent use was not for the living, but for the dead. Because myrrh was often packed in the wrappings of the clothing of a deceased person to stifle the smell of decay. In other words, it was a sacred spice used for burial, which is kind of a strange thing to bring a newborn child, isn't it? Unless you understand that child's destiny. That this is a baby who was actually born to die. (laughs) Was not only king was not just God in the flesh, but is our savior. Actually destined to lose his life for the sins of the world. The good king, the everlasting God, who after one, two years would grow up and 31 years later would move from the cradle to a cross. And this is the difficult part of the nativity story. That in this third gift, the magi foreshadowed the eventual destiny Of this child. Think about when you give gifts, especially like to little kids. A lot of times we project our hopes or or our dreams for them. Uh, My little boy is two and a half years old, and and right now, folks, uh, my relatives are showering little Christmas gifts on him. Um, that kind of that give some of the foreshadowing of our hopes you know for his life you know my mom is like you know giving him all these like little mozart cds like baby einstein you know that kind of thing and she's like maybe he could be a composer and i'm like right i'm giving him like a baseballs and like a bat and i'm like not your sister you know i'm like third baseman yankees 2025 he's an anointed one you know we we give gifts based on our hopes for the life arc of a child and the wise men Who knew a thing or two about reading the signs of God in the heavens and forecasting the future, give this little boy myrrh, an embalming agent, which seems kind of a ghoulish gift, but in fact it's not, in comparison to the gift that Jesus would give as our God and King. The sacrificing of his life 31 years later voluntarily on the cross. For the sins of humanity and being buried in our place. This was a, a meager offering. And this is where the story gets otherworldly folks and distinguishes the miracle of Christmas from every other ordinary holiday. I mean, when we talk about kings and sacrifice, it's it's hard for us to relate. Maybe you're like we live in a democracy though. This isn't like a monarchy, and, and Jesus is king, what does that even mean? We don't quite understand the, the, the kind of otherworldly king that Jesus came to be. But, so, so just to contrast that for a moment, give you a sense of it, okay? Consider Herod. He's the other king, right, in the story. Take a look. It, it talks a little bit about Herod, but he's a secondary player in the narrative. But consider his kingship to the Jewish people. I don't think this is an overstatement, but honestly, Herod was a Saddam Hussein of his time, maybe even worse, obsessed with power ruthless in his rule. Check this out. Um, the Jewish people actually hated him. Uh, he, 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 he was not a legi- legitimate king in the sense of only one of his parents was actually Jewish, but they were like, we don't feel you're a full Jew, and so he attempted to win their favor all through his life through these huge like building projects. So he built the Jewish temple, but he also built the temple of Herod. <laughs> Palaces, auditoriums, theaters, in his name, he spared nothing, no expense, including the lives of anybody who opposed him. He was so paranoid of threats to his throne that guess what happened to his first wife when she became almost as popular as him? (laughs) He executed her. Worried that she might become more popular and rouse opposition to his rule. I was doing some research on this, just historically, um, not even theological, but historians note that the execution of his first wife had a profound effect on Herod. He actually became seriously ill, almost to the point of death. And it instilled this sense of paranoia that lasted throughout his lifetime. Check this, what what happened during his kingship. It's almost unspeakable. Herod actually had ten wives who produced many offspring uh, who contended against each other for his throne. You get a sense of that in the movie. You see that with Antipater. But as Herod got older, he grew so paranoid, so suspicious, so obsessed with, like, Maintaining his grip on his throne that he had a number of his relatives imprisoned and executed, including his two favorite sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. Those were his sons by, by Miriam, whom he had executed earlier. Two wives, two of his favorite sons, ruthless. A man who would do anything to stay in power. I mean, and that's, that's why we innately don't like kings in modern life, because we see the tracks are just greased for tyranny and despotism. But the the list goes on. Herod, check this out. Herod actually had his eldest son, Antipater, executed five days before his own death. And when Herod became deathly ill, he actually had a painful terminal disease. He commanded that many influential Jews, scholars and such, be executed when he died so that the people would definitely mourn at the time of his death instead of rejoicing. Ruthless power-obsessed, a God in his own mind. And when you begin to understand Herod's kingship, earthly rulers, you begin to understand why Matthew writes in verse 3 that Herod was disturbed when he heard that these magi had come. Why? Because he was like, maybe these wise men are are like the the, the sentinels. They're, They're heralding the arrival of a new invading regime from the east that's going to try to oust me. And so when he gathered those chief priests who were actually members of the Sanhedrin, they told him about this prophecy. In Micah 5, they were like, no, in Bethlehem and Judea, you're going to have this ruler who's going to be the shepherd of Israel. That was a prophecy that was seven centuries earlier. And so undoubtedly, Herod was just clicking in his obsession. And, to Herod, and he craftily responded. What did he say? Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go. And make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship this king. Love that guy in the movie. Fortunately for us, the Magi were not simpletons, they were wise men. (laughs) And with God's help, they saw through Herod's deception and actually returned home another way. That's what it says in verse 12. But you guys know, kings are not so easily dissuaded. For verses later, Herod was determined, if you skip ahead to verse 16, one of the most cold and calculating and heartless tragedies in all of life, 21st century or the ancient world. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. In accordance with the time, he learned from the Magi The governor of New Jersey says, in all of Somerset County, I want every little boy two years and under (coughs) off because no one will take me out of my spot. This is what kings were about in the first century. I'd like to say that this was unusual. It's about par for the course. Kings were self-appointed gods who ruled through fear, through bloodlusting would do anything to retain their grip on their throne, including killing their own people. Now, follow. With that historical context in mind, I want you to contrast it for a moment with the kind of king that Jesus said he came to be. In fact, let's look, would we, let's look at this real quickly on his ascension to power. Turn to Philippians 2. Um, this is probably the most eloquent and, and um, telling and revealing description in all of Scripture That Paul says, starting with verse 5, he says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe him and say, These are the qualities of how Jesus Christ came to rule in this world. Verse 6, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself, let's read the word together, nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Earthly kingship, it's not enough. I want to be God and anyone who threatens me, I will kill. Divine kingship, I am God. I will become a man and give my life to save every last one of you. That's the difference here, folks. Jesus was a God and king who declined power, who actually said, I will rule by stooping to serve. I'm in very nature God. I will renounce my throne and come to this sweaty, dirty, blood-soaked world to be born into straw poverty in, in an animal's trough. Why? Because I don't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but I will make myself nothing embodiment of mercy and humility the king who takes the nature of a servant and gives up his crown to die on a cross paul says that he humbled himself and became obedient to death notice by the way you can underline this this phrase here a uh, prepositional phrase even death on a cross exclamation point you see the exclamation point that's actually there in the original manuscript for one reason in the roman world crucifixion was the most reviled humiliating death anyone could suffer reserved for the lowest of the lows, and Jesus was, in turn, 31 years later, executed among common criminals with a simple sign above his head, here is the king of the Jews. He wasn't a bloodthirsty king like Herod, but rather the opposite. The kind of king who would willingly spill his own blood to save the lives of his people. Why? Why why did Jesus do this? Why would God, I mean, who is all powerful, voluntarily send his son to our world to die in our place? Because there's something else about kings. And if you ever have a taste of power, you'll learn it real quick. There are a couple of ways you can rule or motivate people to do what you want. <laughs> One is through fear, muscle, get in line. <clears throat> the other is love. Big difference. Jesus did not want to rule in the lives of people out of fear, but out of love. Think of the difference, fear and love. Using fear, you can get people to do any number of things. I think it's Eli Weissel in his manuscript night. He talks about how in the Nazi concentration camps, he said the guards could get human beings to do anything. They held the power of God. I actually saw a man eat his own excrement. One have to shoot his mother in the head. That was within their power to do. There was one thing the Nazi guards We're powerless to do. Make any one of us love them. It's impossible. Herod was in bed with Rome. That's why the Jews didn't love him. They feared him, but they didn't love him. And Jesus comes on the other hand. And God, in coming to this world, to display his glory in another way, through love. How do you know how much someone really loves you? How do you know? Maybe through the kind of gift they give, right? Maybe you'll discover in seven days when someone gives you a gift you weren't expecting. Oh, my gosh. I t- what? I, I, was talking, I was talking, I think it was Amy Stolfer out in the, uh, in the lobby after the first one. I was like, hey, is, your, is Matt here, your husband? She goes, no, no, he's in Costa Rica. I was like, oh, on business? She goes, no, I sent him there. I was like, wow, things must be bad. She's like, no, no, no. She goes, I, it's a Christmas gift. I sent him with his friends, with his buddies to go surfing for a week. I was like, are you serious? She goes, it was awesome. She goes, I sent him. She goes, and it just, he was so surprised. He was like shocked. He didn't know what to say at all. And and, he just had the greatest time. And I was like, would you talk to my wife? (laughs) Would you? Amazing. You know the depth of someone's love for you by the degree that we're willing to sacrifice for you. Don't you? And how do we know what love is? Of Jesus, we're told this in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this. Then he actually laid down his life for his friends. That is what's going on here at Christmas, folks. This is the outpouring of a king's heart. (laughs) An attempt to get your attention to let you know that you can't imagine how loved you are by this extravagant God who is not at all like earthly rulers. Not not like human men. Jesus was both God and man, and he also came to reconcile the two through his life and his death. 31 years later, after the wise men visited, the, kings, the kingdoms of this world were forever changed when Jesus goes from the cradle to the cross to die for the sins of humanity. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5.8. He says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, we were enemies of the crown, Christ, the Son of God, came to die for us. That's, his death in our place brought all the riches of heaven down to earth. Forgiveness of sins, hope for eternal life after death, joy instead of despair. We, the message of Christmas is you are not alone anymore. Emmanuel, God is with you, he has come for you, and you are children of a good king. Is that something you believe? that you're actually willing to base your life on. <laughs> gifts say so much about the giver, but also about the recipient. And the gifts of each of these wise men likely had more significance than, than they knew. I mean, gold, this, this was the king. I love that moment in the movie where that shepherd comes in, and, and he like is uh, trying to touch the infant Jesus, and Mary says, he is a gift for all people. Jesus was not just a God, small g, but The God, capital G, our creator taking on flesh, a baby born for one purpose, to die, to be raised to life. And when he returns, what? What does the king do? Rule forever. Look how Philippians 2 finishes. It finishes this way in verse 9. Therefore, because of what Jesus sacrificed for you, the Father, God, exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Man. Myrrh. What would you do with a gift like that? Thanks. (laughs) A burial embalming paste. (laughs) You're born to die. Here's a question for you to ponder this week. In seven days at this Christmas, what gift will you give back to God? My little girl wanted to see the nativity up close. So I got her up on my shoulders, put her up on the thing. And it was funny. I thought she was going to go in and wreak havoc with all the wise men, you know. But, uh, but she got in. And she ran, started running towards it. And then she just stopped there and just looked at this baby. And this is what Christmas is. is pausing and saying, what do I make of this kid in the straw. Is it true? The Magi gave their time to be truth seekers. They spent nine months. They spent their treasure. <laughs> and when they laid their gifts at the manger, they stated what they truly thought about Jesus, about who he was. And these royal scholars bowed before a crib. <laughs> That's an amazing thing. Any, any parents here? Any parents here at uh, this service? Okay, a few, few young, young families. Um, I want you, especially those of you who have newborns or or infants, I want you to imagine tomorrow, Monday morning, ding-dong, you're like, who the heck is here? And you look out the shades and you see like three um, Cadillac Escalades, all black tinted windows (laughs) with diplomat plates. (laughs) They're from the UN and you open the door and they are like, we are here to see your son, you know? And, And you're like, what? And they just like barrel through and they go into your nursery and you walk in your nursery and they're bowing at the crib of your child. Improbable? These men were after the truth, capital T. And they were called wise men because their investment was worth it. They said, I believe it. Jesus is the true king. And they actually risked disobeying the earthly king's orders to preserve it. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. After finding Jesus and, wor- and worshiping him, it's interesting because the Magi were warned by God not to return through Jerusalem as they intended. And they actually obeyed God, not Herod, <laughs> to return by a different route. That's what it says in closing in verse 12. In other words, I was struck by this. Finding Jesus may actually mean that your life must take a different direction. One that is now responsive and obedient to God's word. That's what it also means to embrace Jesus as your savior. Are you willing to sacrifice and actually be led in a different way after you find him? I can think of no better example of this at Christmas than my friend Jill Garaffa. Um, Jill visited Liquid for the first time about two months ago. Um, I will forever remember her because I was like, hey, where are you from? You know, I usually welcome new folks and stuff. And she's like, um, down by um, uh, Action Park or is a Great, Adve- Great Adventure? Down by Great Adventure. I was like, Great Adventure, isn't that down by? And I was like, she's like, Jackson, yeah, it's an hour and a half. It's like, oh, hour and a half away, so someone had invited her, she, she, she came, and, and I was like, an hour and a half, I mean, when I'm talking about long journeys, kind of like the wise men, you know, on her trek up to Basking Ridge, but Jill is a truth seeker above all else, I know, because on her connection card, you know, those things that we have people fill out here, um, we say, where are you on, the, on your spiritual journey, and she checked where it said, I, I'm investigating, I'd, I'd actually like to know more about starting a relationship with Christ, I, I'm not sure, I, I, have, I have questions, and so I emailed her, and I said, well, what kind of questions do you have? And, and, and I'd like to just kind of share with you in closing her story through a string of emails that we exchanged. She said, um, first one was on the 19th of October. She said, hi, Tim. Uh, you offered that if I want to talk with you more after church, you'd be available. I'll be coming this Sunday to the 630 service. Would you be available afterwards for a conversation? It'd mean a lot, because I got a bunch of questions and need a bit of direction. My life is definitely not working as well as I'd like. And there's a feeling of being, I don't know, very lost it sort of followed me around for a long time, always in the background, feeling like I'm floundering. Can you relate to this? It's like I want things. I start moving toward the thing I think I want, and then I realize it's not the thing I really need. So I got a ton of questions about Christianity, Christ, Jesus, etc., all of it. I've always considered myself Christian, but don't identify myself as saved. I think I might be. I just don't know for sure. Anyway, thanks for listening, for your time and caring. I appreciate it. I've blabbed on a bunch. Jill. Awesome. So I wrote her back and everything, and we were, we were talking about meeting, and, uh, and she wrote back to me about a week later, and she said, Hey, Tim, it's Jill, the gal from Jackson, hour and a half away. <laughs> Thank you. She's like, frequent flyer miles. Jill, go. Uh, she says, We have an appointment set for a couple of weeks away, but if you have time to talk earlier, even by phone, I'd really appreciate it. See, I'm feeling really lost and confused and could really use a trained ear. My life feels very messy at the moment and has felt this way for quite some time. It seems that God is on the job, but things are starting to fall apart. I'm sort of on my head again, but there's still so much resistance and fear. Every day something happens that gets me present to the fact that my way just isn't working. I don't want to write a bunch on email because I'm at work, but if you can afford some time to talk, my cell is listed below. Thanks, Jill. P.S., if you don't have time to talk, please forward this on to anyone who has some time. I, I can use all your help. Thanks, Tim. Awesome. <laughs> so actually, I said, I said Jill, uh, you know what? Maybe you can talk with Erica this week over email, so she exchanged some emails with Erica, and, um, and we're going to meet... Uh, few weeks ago. So here's the coolest thing that happened. I totally blow it. <laughs> I scheduled a meeting to meet with Jill, and, uh, and she kept coming, and, uh, and we we're going to meet up to talk after one of our services last month. But I totally, like double book, got hung up in this other meeting that just kind of kept going on, and Jill was like totally left out to dry in the foyer, all alone. I'm so sorry, Jill. Um, but fortunately, and this is why I love this church, Gail Smith, are you here? Where's Gail? Gail Smith, Gail, one of our core members here sees Jill alone goes over and starts talking with her begins this friendship now catch this Gail took it upon herself to talk with Jill they, they had this heart to heart conversation in the lobby Pastor Glenn actually eventually apparently joined them because he tells me afterwards he's like the most incredible thing happened he's like that girl Jill you're going to meet with I go yeah I go oh I totally blew it he's like no 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 it was God appointed that you weren't there you would have blown it <laughs> 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 what do, what do you mean he goes, Gail Smith. He's like, this is like God's woman. And she just listened to, to Jill in some of the hard, confusing areas of her life. He's like, and Jill, he's like, just so open in this humble receptivity to this. So I like kind of felt, you know, relieved, you know, like, cause like, you know, I blew the meeting. Um, it, it, but then the next day I get this email Hey everyone, parentheses Gail, Pastor Tim, <laughs> uh, Pastor Glenn, and Erica, I have great news for you in all caps. I am officially saved. Seriously, I had the most amazing conversation with a friend of a friend last night, and it all finally clicked. The two of us sat down and talked for about two hours. That conversation, on the tails of my two-minute conversation with Pastor Tim, remember all you said was, it looks like God's at work in your life. So sad. (laughs) Our conversations, and all that Gail and Pastor Glenn and Erica said, it sealed the deal for me, and I finally get it. We prayed together, and I confessed with my heart and my mouth that Jesus is Lord, and I invited him into my life. It was so freeing and liberating, and there's this amazing sense of relief, like I'm not kicking and screaming anymore, not fighting it, not confused. I get all choked up and teary-eyed again just thinking about it. I can't believe it took me this long. It's been 20 years, and I finally feel like I'm home again. I still got a lot of questions, but there's absolutely no doubt at all. I am totally clear that Jesus is who he says he is, And he died for me, even though my mind can't even grasp it, I think. I'm totally crying again. (laughs) My friend explained things and got my world in a way no one else has. And and each conversation added another piece to the puzzle. You guys led me to him, which led me to Jesus, which is very cool. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Everything feels different today. There's a sense of excitement, a bit of anxiety, like I'm not sure what's next. But thanks for being in my life. I'm looking forward to getting to know all of you. See you at the next service. Jill, are you here? Would you welcome Jill? <laughs> and Gail, Gail, would you wave there? Gail, would you say, everybody? Awesome, just awesome. That's just that is what it's about. It's what church is about. It's what family's about. It's all all of us being on a journey. As I've been talking with Jill, one of the two, two things that struck me, she's like, she, I, I was like, you know, Jill, you know, hour and a half, that's long, <laughs> and you should get gas reimbursement, I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> or 99 cent gas, but I, but, but I was like, maybe, you know, maybe there's a church that's close, and she goes, no, I got to come here, because the relationships are too important. Being around other brothers and sisters who are growing, I, I have to, I have to stick with it. I have to grow, I have to go in a new direction after having found Jesus. There's a word for that. It's called worship. Like the wise men, bowing before the feet of Jesus, offering the gift of your life, confessing that Jesus is the God, he's the king, he's the savior who died for you, accepts me as is. I want you as Lord of my life, and I will follow you in what new direction. And it is worth it. At least that's what wise men and wise women still know. How about you? Have you bowed before the manger? <laughs> These guys traveled thousands of miles to see the king of the Jews. And when they finally found him, they responded with, actually says, joy, worship, and gifts. I mean, this is so different than the approach that most folks in the 21st century take. I mean, in modern life, we expect God to come looking for us to explain every detail of himself, to prove exactly who he is, and then give us gifts. But the message of the Magi is that those who are wise still seek and worship Jesus today, not for what they can get, but for who he is. So question for you, what gift will you offer God this Christmas? Maybe your life, <laughs> maybe we'll follow your, our sister Jill in that. Maybe your worship, a first time confession that he is truly God alone, you've been close but now what better time to say this is the king of kings, I'm banking my life on. it. Or maybe it's maybe because there are many of you here who have already made that decision and you're kind of like, yeah, I really hope people give their lives. What about you? Because maybe your gift is actually your treasure, your most valuable possession, your, your, your gold, your, your precious. Maybe gold is the thing that would honor God in a new way. I mean, Mike was up here before talking about our end of year giving, you know, preparing the way for our relocation in 2007. And I was like, oh, I hope people get this. This is not about buying a building This is about creating an environment that makes Jesus famous and makes a place for people like Jill to find their way home to the God who loves them. So when you give your gift, you know what our vision is for 2007. When we say a high-definition church, it means a church that brings God into such razor-sharp focus that people who are far away can't help but see and be drawn, a place for new friends and sisters like Jill. Jill. I'll give you an update in the new year when we get to January. We, last week we looked at some uh, warehouses and some office buildings. And, man, every, <laughs> Dave can tell you it ranged from $7 per square foot to $27 per square foot. And we're looking at like 30,000 square feet of space. And if you do the math, it ain't cheap. It is like Mike said, like, are we going to get the Honda or the van down by the river? <laughs> but we're doing this. You know why? Because we believe it's what God wants us to do. If you create a home in a church, it's about one thing. Creating a place where people can take a step back to God and find hope and healing and new life with the Savior of the world. And maybe your year and gift can help us do that. He wants a gift, but it has to be out of love, not fear. Love, love makes you do funny things. It makes you think strange thoughts. We got this connection card from a woman the other uh, week in our, in our, um, our, our membership here. And she wrote, she doesn't have a lot of money, I know. She said, I actually, I'm a house sitter and I'm a pet sitter. But all of the money between now and she filled this out in like October and Christmas is going to this launch. That may be, I don't, I don't even know. What's pet, I don't know. That may be like $40. This week we got the receipt for someone who donated $20,000. And do you know what we said when we looked at both of them? Both are Miracles. <laughs> Every one is a miracle, because it has nothing to do with size, it has nothing to do with cost, but the heart of the giver. What's your gift? What's your gift of, of whatever it is? Your life, your gold. I don't know what your next step is. One one of the things that we put on our uh, on our envelopes here. Say so anyone have a, a giving envelope. I think this is like kind of glossed over. Aaron, can I just see your bulletin real quick there? I want to read this verse for you because there's like a million things you could put on this. Some churches will guilt you. You know we're not about guilt. We chose this verse. (laughs) We put 2 Corinthians 9, 7, which says, you must each make up your own mind as to how much you should give. Don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves the person who gives. What's the word? Cheerfully. The wise men, when they reached Jesus the word that scripture says, they were what? Overjoyed. It was out of love. It was out of joy. Friends, this is what wise men still know. That Jesus is God. He is king and he's savior of our broken world. And investing in his kingdom is the wisest investment you can possibly make on earth. He deserves our very best and most of all, our lives. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, I want to point to you and just thank you for who you are. We thank you for coming for us. Lord, we can barely um, get our minds around what it was like for you to sacrifice and come to this world as a human gift, God in the flesh. But we just thank you that you are not of this world. You are like no king, no man, no ruler who's gone before. And that your kingdom is one of love and grace and forgiveness and welcome invitation to people who are on their journey to find truth. Thank you that you're the way, the truth, and the life. We praise you and just worship you now as a perfect embodiment of perfect love and as a way to restore a relationship with God our Father. Please receive our worship now as we stand together and sing. In Jesus' name, all God's people said,